the 20th century stood as the unchallenged century of violence. And sadly to say, the 21st century is continuing in the same manner. The modern state, I read, uh, has proven itself to be the greatest killer of all time. Uh, It was said that by 1990, state violence had been responsible for the unnatural deaths of at least 125 million people during that century. The, the, The numbers fluctuate. But sadly, our own culture is leading the way in homicides. Let me give you some stats. You can see these if you go online, New Zealand Police or Statistics New Zealand, for example. We, we see things like today more children are dying at the hands of their abusive parents. According to New Zealand police, assaults for the year ending July 2018 was over 24,000. That's only the ones reported. Between 2007 and 2016, there were 686 people killed by homicide. That, By the way, that includes murder and manslaughter. And since 2000, New Zealand has murdered 290,000 babies through the means of abortion. 290,000, and that's just the ones, again, those are the ones that were reported. So we have a massive problem, a terrible, disgusting problem, and it's important that we don't turn our backs on these grim realities. And here in Genesis 4... Homicide or murder becomes the centerpiece of the story. But this is, I hope you understand, it's far more than a story of just the first murder in the Bible. Okay? If that's all you think about this, you're you're really missing the point. As Jude 11 says, it's about the way of Cain. It's about the way of Cain. It's, It's about the corruption and the slide of a heart away from God into notorious sin. How could someone do this? And so the story reveals something of the essential nature of all mankind by presenting an unforgettable picture here. And so as you look at this, you're going to see the story of depravity, but as usual, when you see God's judgment, look for His grace. When you see God's judgment, look for His grace. Again, just as we saw in Genesis 3, we see God's grace. So let's read God's Word from Genesis 4. Verse 1, verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Here's the main idea from our text, and so we'll try to look at this in greater depth. But here it is. Those who worship must have as their goal always to please God so that they will not allow sin to work in its ruinous ways in their lives. This is what we see in Cain's life. Cain becomes the main character in the story here. The general structure of this story emphasizes that very point in the main idea. For example, just think about some big picture stuff here for a moment. Uh, the, The contrast between the beginning of the story and the ending is very significant. For example, at uh, the beginning, uh, the mother of all living says at the birth of the first child, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And then you come to the end of this story. The conclusion of the story reports Cain's departure in his relationship to God. And, And the Bible says Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. So as we look at this story today, keep in mind the real issue here is unbelief. It's unbelief. In fact, you see Abel and Cain come up in the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Notice what it says particularly about Abel in contrast to Cain. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So clearly, based on Hebrews 11 here, the central issue at hand here is the unbelief on Cain's part, whereas Abel chose to put his faith in God. So we want to look at this text and ask this question as we think about the issue of unbelief. How does unbelief manifest itself? Now here's where it's going to be applicable to you. Because we're all in danger of unbelief. Obviously, you don't want to follow the way of Cain. Uh, you, you, you better to follow the way of Abel here. But how does unbelief manifest itself? And we see these ways here, and hopefully that will help us to avoid the way of Cain, as Jude 11 says. So first of all, we see that unbelief becomes anger over God's approval of those more faithful. Watch out. Unbelief can turn into anger as we saw in these first verses. 
So the first part of the story here sets out this occasion for this dastardly crime. We have one brother apparently pleased God and found acceptance, and the other brother, thinking himself to be just as acceptable, ends up being just filled in his heart with envy and rage. So the issue here is, how does one react to seeing yourself passed over and and another person blessed? That's always difficult. In our pride, it's difficult to see us passed over and someone else blessed. You might see it at, at, at your job. You know, you, you're trying to do the best at your job that you can, and the boss overlooks you, and you think, man, that guy got the promotion? That guy's a slacker. How did he get promoted? And you're thinking, I did my best, but he gets it. That's hard to deal with. And so if we're self-righteous and we're proud, you and I can react the same way Cain did. So we need to be aware of that. Let's just think through some some things going on in the text here. First of all, Cain had a positive beginning. He had a positive beginning. Look what the Bible says about him. Because it says in chapter 4, verse 1, Now Adam and Eve knew his or, or now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. In the context here, verse 1. That word knew means to know experientially. Uh, It doesn't mean that Adam knew a few facts about his wife. (laughs) That's not what it means. In fact, it was actually a euphemism, a Hebrew euphemism that just means sexual intercourse. And so the result, of course, was that Eve conceived the first child and named him Cain. The Bible names mean things. And this is a particularly interesting one because the name Cain is actually a play on words. It's a Hebrew play on words. And so when Eve names him Cain, the Hebrew sounds like what Eve said, I have gotten, which just means to acquire. She acquired. And and it's also interesting, she named the boy, or sorry, she called the boy man. Isn't that interesting? Say, so what's the point of that? Well, apparently Eve is, is at the same time recognizing the baby's common humanity. Even though Cain is the, the first naturally born child into the world, remember God had formed Adam and Eve, but this is the first showing this the baby's common humanity here to the first human beings. But then she actually says something that's quite shocking when you understand what's going on here because verse 1 literally says, I have gotten a man, colon, Yahweh. Now you don't pick up on that in the English. I looked at a lot of English translations and, and, it, and it wasn't really saying exactly that. The idea is, another way of literally saying it is, Eve said, I have received a man, namely Jehovah. Now, when you see the, the all capital letters Lord in your Bible, that's, that's God's name, Yahweh. And so the English translations are trying to help us understand because it, like, what, what's that about? I have gotten a man, Yahweh? Why did she say that? Well, if you go back to chapter 3, 
verse 15, you remember that great promise where God had promised mankind a redeemer, the seed of the woman, through the seed of the woman, or it would be the seed of the woman. It was also foretelling a divine seed. And so Eve believed she was giving birth to the promised seed here, the promised deliverer, the the deliverer who would come, that God talked about in chapter 3, verse 15. However, the promised seed of the woman, of course, wouldn't be born for about 4,000 years after God first made his promise. Therefore, if you look at this, Eve's theology is accurate, but her application is a bit faulty, of course. It probably didn't take Eve long to realize that Cain was not the promised deliverer, was not the Messiah, and you can pick up on that by the name she gives to her second child, at least the one the Bible mentions. It seems to indicate here by by naming her next child Abel. And the Hebrew for Abel means vanity. In fact, it's the same Hebrew word used in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2 that says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Right? That same word used in Ecclesiastes for vanity is the word that she says for Abel. Very interesting, isn't it? And so this would be explained by Eve's disillusionment that she was not to be the mother of the Messiah. So she names her second son Vanity, basically. There's a a slight ominous note in the text here coming into verse 2 when you see this contrast between the boy's occupations. Cain is a, a, a worker of the ground, Abel is a keeper of the sheep. By the way, don't read too much into that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with either one of those occupations. <laughs> okay, If you want to look after sheep, fine. If you want to till the ground, fine. Uh, but there is a hint of the, the place of each man in the nature of things here. Because Cain lines up with an occupation that actually resulted from the fall. And we have Abel here with uh, men's and women's original purpose of having dominion over the animals, which we saw in chapter 1. So there's, it is kind of a foreshadowing of a way of, of, I guess, their very natures and things to come in the text. So there's, there's a, a promising beginning, but we see in verses 3 through 5 that Cain missed an opportunity, missed a great opportunity. And notice what the text says here, because... Verse 3 says, uh, here's what God said, you shall, oh wait, I'm looking at the wrong chapter. Chapter 4, verse 3. It it mentions in the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering. That phrase, in the course of time, has the idea that they they had a, a regular time of worship. And so at the time of worship, we have both of these young men bringing their offerings to God. And uh, by the way, it's uh, both of the offerings are called the same thing in Hebrew. Uh, same uh, Hebrew word in the text. So it's not like one offering is, is, is a totally different thing from the other one. Same Hebrew word. So in the Levitical Code, it's, it's, it described an acceptable offering. And so the text here stressing Abel went out of his way to please God. Notice it says, he brought of the first flo- firstborn of his flock. 
and of their fat portions. Now, the idea of that is he's bringing the fattest of his flock. And when you bring the fattest of your flock, the idea is you're picking out the best. You're picking out the healthiest animals that are going to be slaughtered. Like, you're not, you're not picking the, uh, the animal that's on his last leg and, and might die tomorrow anyway, right? <laughs> that's not what you do when you bring an offering to God, right? You're supposed to bring him your best, and that's, that's what he's doing. He's bringing the best and the healthiest. But in, in contrast to Abel's offering here, Cain's is just, just, the Bible just simply mentions it. He brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. So we got one worshiper, here's the point. One worshiper went out of his way to please God and worship God, and then the other guy, he's just, it's just a duty. He's just discharging his duty. His heart's not really in it. So what's, what's going on here? That, that's part of it, right? Part of it is Abel's bringing the best and the healthiest. He wants to worship God. Cain doesn't really care about worshiping God. But there's something else going on here. And I think Henry Morris says it well, so I'll just quote uh, from the Genesis record. He says, The entire occurrence... The entire occurrence can only be really understood in the context of an original revelation by God regarding the necessity of substitutionary sacrifice as a prerequisite to approaching God. Such revelation was most likely given at the time God provided coats of skins for Adam and Eve and then banished them from his presence, providing, however, a specific means by which they could still commune with him at certain times on the basis of a similar sacrifice. Adam and Eve had no doubt duly instructed their children in this provision, and for a long time they heeded and followed it. Cain himself had probably purchased from Abel a sheep for his own sacrifice each time they came to the appointed place. There came a time, however, when Cain began to resent the situation and finally decided to rebel against it. There seemed no good reason to him why he should be indebted to his younger brother each time. His own fruits were every bit as valuable and at least as attractive and useful to man as were Abel's animals. Therefore, Cain, in presumption and rebellion, finally would no longer accept one of his brother's sheep, but instead brought the fruit which his own efforts had coerced from the earth God had cursed. His heart was not right before the Lord, His offering was not in faith, as was his brother's. Therefore, God rejected his gift. So remember, faith and unbelief is crucial in this story. And we know that based on places like Hebrews 11, verse 4. I'll remind you, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So he comes by faith. He's believing. He's trusting in God. He's he's worshiping God as God had prescribed for them to do. What's Cain's response? Well, Cain responds in anger in verse 5. Because look at the end of verse 5. It says, Cain was very angry and his face fell. So a further indication here of Cain's lack of faith is how he responds to God's displeasure with his offering. 
That, that says a lot about you. When, when you're corrected, and someone finds displeasure with, with you or what you did, how you respond says a lot about your heart. And so he's clearly jealous over his brother's acceptance by God, and as a result, he becomes very angry. And this anger, which was not the response that, that, that is expected of a humble believer, nevertheless prompted a warning from God himself. As I was reading this, and, and as you were reading, did you think about what is the proper response? When God corrects you, or something happens and you're struggling with a noisy soul and you're, you're, you're bothered by somebody getting a promotion or you're, you're passed over and someone else is favored in, in your place... How do you respond? What's the proper response? And you, you're struggling with envy, and you become angry and sinful. What is the proper response? Well, hopefully you know the proper response. Uh, Cain should have confessed his sin at that moment. By the way, confession means you say the same thing that God says about it. <laughs> right? Confession of, of sin is, uh, um, is not... I'm sorry I got caught. That is not how God sees our sin. Oh, no. Uh, And confession should include a repentance of my sin. So, in other words, it's it's a total change of mind in regard to my sin. See, Cain should have seen his sin the way God saw it and not the way he was seeing it, of course. And so when we see things our way, we tend to blame shift and deny and that's what's going on here when Caden responds in anger but remember this the, the issue here the central issue is about unbelief what do we learn in verses 6 through 8 we see unbelief disregards the warnings against sin God is gracious and he comes to Cain and he warns him but unbelief disregards the warnings let's see how God warned Cain Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So Cain's angry over the rejection of his offering that, that God warned him of the peril that he was in here. God warns him. It's interesting, if you think back to Eve, Eve was talked into her sin by Satan. But here it appears Cain, he doesn't want to be talked out of his intended sin. He intends to follow through. Even He's not even in, in, intended to be talked out by God himself here. And at the center of God's speech is this concept here of, notice it says, doing well. If you do well, you're going to be uplifted. Watch out. Sin's crouching at the door, God says. And it's an interesting way of putting it. So here then is this predicted conflict that we saw back in chapter 3 between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There's this conflict between good and evil, and it's arising here in the next chapter. And so the point of the statement, even though put in a conditional clause in our Bibles here, is 
that Cain was to do well. He is to do good. That's interesting because Romans says, how are you to overcome evil? You overcome evil with good. In other words, do what is right and you will master sin. But Cain's anger was reflected in his, his fallen face. And that's just a very literal way of saying you could see in his facial expressions what's going on in his heart. His heart has fallen. His heart is, has entered into a depressed state, if you will. And so it's, it's showing on his face. If he did well, then a, a lot of things would change. God says you need to do good. You need to do well. But if he did not do well, sin was about to overwhelm him. That's according to Yahweh here. And that's interesting because notice how the Bible describes sin. It's described like, or it's personified, if you will, like an animal that's crouching at the door, ready to pounce on you and destroy you and eat you. And that's exactly what happens to Cain here. He's not wary. He's not watching. He doesn't care about sin. He's ready to, to take over. And the anger takes over. And the anger made him susceptible to the evil influence. We also see Cain displayed calloused disobedience to God. So no sooner had God's warning ended than Cain, what does he do? He goes out, meets his brother Abel. He, he, he's purposely set upon his brother and murdered him. The Hebrew wording in your Bible there in verse 8, by the way, shows that this was premeditated murder. In other words, it wasn't an accident. He had planned to do this. He had thought about it ahead of time. The Bible says Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Just callous disobedience. So, The issue here is unbelief. We move on to verse 9. We see unbelief denies the responsibility for sin. So it starts with not heeding the warnings that God gives. If you don't heed those warnings, it's going to move into an outright denial of the responsibility for your sin. Because look what verse 9 says. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? What is he doing here? First of all, he lies. He knows where his brother Abel is. So it's an outright lie. And then he just gets really calloused and just outright denial. Am I my brother's keeper? So just as he did in the previous narrative, God is coming to the sinner here with questions. In his grace, he comes... He asks questions. Why does God do that of us? He wants us to confess our sin. He wants you to say the same thing about your sin that He thinks about it. That's very gracious of God to do that. And He comes with a rhetorical question. He's seeking confession. He he wants some indication of, of Cain recognizing his guilt and his shame and what he's done. Of course God knew where Abel was, because if you look at the next verse, verse 10, it actually clarifies this very thing. But what he's seeking is a confession from Cain. 
Cain's response was not confession. (laughs) It's denial. Lying and denial. Cain's response reveals more of his nature here. He denies any knowledge of the murder. And then he just rejects the responsibility for his brother. To lie is one thing. But the denial of responsibility for his brother is a very telling thing here. See, the answer to Cain's question should be, yes. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is, yes. You and I are our brother's keeper. See, if a nation or a family is to survive, the people must be responsible for the well-being of one another. If a church is to survive... We must be concerned about all those one another commands of the Scripture to love one another and bear one another's burdens and forgive one another and so forth. We need to be concerned for one another. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. But the answer that Cain was thinking was, no, I am not my brother's keeper, sadly. We move on, we see that unbelief protests the punishment for sin. So it just gets it gets worse and worse. Now we got a protest that I am getting punished for my sin. That's verses ten through fourteen. So we see God judged Cain. How did he do that? Oh look at verse ten. The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So God answers his own question that he gives in verse 9 here. And he cuts across Cain's defiant answer. See, Cain may have denied the murder, but the blood testified against him by crying out to God. You can't hide anything from God. You can't bury someone in the ground and expect to get away with it. God's speech moves instantly from the accusation to the judgment. That declaration there, you are cursed from the ground, may be a conscious reversal of the wording back in chapter 3, verse 17, where God says, cursed is the ground because of you. See how that's swapped around? And accordingly, there's an advance on the curse from chapter 3. Now, it's attached to the son of Adam. Do you see how how the consequences of sin are passed on? You and I bear the consequences of our father Adam's sin. So Cain, what happens to him? He's he's banished from the land, basically. And the ground is in in collusion with Cain uh, by virtue of its receiving the blood. And it's crying out. It's bearing witness, even though Cain thinks, maybe I got away with it. (laughs) And so the abundant fertility will thus be hindered greatly, and Cain will have great difficulty getting his food. That's part of the curse. Well, Cain, Cain looks at God's judgment and curse upon him, and he can't bear it. Oh, it's too great to bear, he says. And so Cain... He's going to be a ceaseless wanderer, God says. A wanderer and a fugitive. God puts them both together. And the basic idea is a wandering fugitive. 
either one of those is bad enough by itself, but God's combined them together. He is a wandering fugitive. And perhaps the difficulty of getting a decent yield from the soil would contribute to Cain's endless wandering, trying to find food all the time. Well, at any rate, the murderer here is banished from the fertile land and must flee into exile. And the Bible says he goes to the east of Eden. So what does Cain do next? Well, he protests. What do you do when you don't agree? <laughs> well, don't do what Cain did, but isn't this a typical response of human beings? We don't like something. What do we do? Oh, we're not getting paid enough. So we'll protest. Right? That's Anyway, if you're paying attention to the news, you'll it's all over the place. So in, in Cain's response to the judgment of God... We discover the last clue to his character here is, well, he just says, my punishment is too great to bear. <laughs> punishment there, by the way, can, can also mean he's talking about his sin or his guilt, which has led some to suggest that Cain's crying out for forgiveness here. By the way, I don't think he's crying out for forgiveness, but there are some commentators who think that. Cain nowhere, by the way, is portrayed with even the slightest hint of remorse here. Not, none whatsoever. Uh, the word should thus be taken in the sense of it, it, he's talking about the punishment for his sin. So the context always helps us to know how to interpret here. We see that uh, moving on to verse 15 and 16, the unbelief continues under God's protection. Yes, we see judgment, but we see God's grace. Unbelief continues under God's protection. So, have you heard of common grace? Common grace comes from uh, the Bible. You, you see the idea of that the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That's what the Bible says. So, common grace is, is displayed here as well. How, you say, well, how? Well, God put some kind of protection on Cain so that he would survive. It was very common in, in, in biblical times where if someone murdered, it was, it was the responsibility of at least the family, if not the community, to deal with the murderer. And so the action here shows essentially what God thought of blood revenge. And so God became the protector of the murderer, and he promised vengeance on the avenger. In fact, it would be worse, God said, for the avenger, the one who sought to bring revenge. And so Cain's last act of defiance was his settling in the land of Nod, and uh, as we'll see in the next section, he goes and he builds a city. And there's a very interesting, ironic word play. You see that word Nod in your Bible there? Uh, this was the, use, the word that's used for fugitive. <laughs> kind of ironic. And so one might say he lived in the land of wanderings. He, he lived in the land of the fugitives. <laughs> kind of a funny way to put it. But So to be alone without God, is there anything worse than that? To, to be alone without God, to me, has got to be the worst thing that earth can hold for any human being. And so Cain, it says, went out from the presence of Yahweh. Do not let it be true of you, my friend, that you went out from the presence of Yahweh. That is not where you want to be. 
Instead, we, we need to flee to Him. We need to find in Him the one who you have needed all along. So this story presents a picture of a man who is lacking greatly in faith. He's not like Abel, according to Hebrews 11, who had faith. Cain is lacking in faith. He's a man in rebellion against God. And so the message to the potentially rebellious person, which, by the way, that's all of us, in case you're wondering, we, we all have this temptation to rebel against God. And so the potential rebellious person is, you need to concentrate on doing what is right to overcome evil. See, if you do nothing, if you do nothing, remember, evil and sin is described like that, that animal is crouching, ready to attack and pounce on you and take over. And so if you're not watching, if you're not ready, if you're not prepared, if you do nothing, you will be overcome. You must overcome evil with good, the Bible says. But the message to the godly person is devote yourself to serving God. Knowing that such service is going to alienate you from the wicked individual who is, who is only just outwardly religious, like Cain. Outwardly religious, but inwardly dead. He's not really worshiping God, but he, he's just going through the outward motions. It's just a duty for him. And so if you're, if you're godly, you, you need to devote yourself to serving God. Even though it can cause problems. Doesn't it? Have, you, have that ever happened to you? You ever devoted yourself to serving God, knowing that there's all kinds of outwardly religious people around you who may not take very kindly to what you do and say? They're not going to appreciate you. In fact, they might call you a Bible thumper or a a goody two-shoes, or you're holier than thou, or whatever other demeaning terms they might come up with, right? You know, how dare you be salt and light? You're, you're, you're cramping my style. That's kind of what happens. And we can alienate people, wicked individuals who are just outwardly religious, don't like when you're devoted to serving God. The Apostle John concentrates on the theme of love for the brethren, and he actually uses Cain as an illustration. Look at this in 1 John 3, verse 11. It says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Is that the way you think? Is that the way you feel? Or do you marvel when the world hates you? Do you marvel? Are you surprised when that religiously, uh, out, the outwardly religious person attacks you? Because, because you're wholeheartedly devoted to serving God, like Abel. Are you surprised? You shouldn't be. John says, don't. Don't be surprised when you get that kind of reaction. But instead, you need to love one another. Don't follow the way of Cain. And so, my friends, here's the main idea again. Those who worship 
must have their goal always to please God so that they will not allow sin to work its ruinous ways in their lives. Do you, do you see that? You, you know one of the main purposes of the church is to worship God. You're to, to, to declare His worth, who He is, what He does. And so your goal is to please God. You can't please God when you're allowing sin to do its evil work in your hearts. So my friends, any time a person is filled with envy and anger over God's blessing on others, there, was, there will be disaster upon you if that anger is allowed to run its course. See, the Bible describes bitterness like a root. Picture the roots from a, from a tree going out, goes deep, and, and roots can be very, very big, very powerful. And it just it makes it really, really hard to remove some weeds and some, some, some plants sometimes because they got big, powerful roots. The Bible describes bitterness as a root to other evil. We need to watch out for that. So anytime a person's filled with anger, filled with envy, disaster is lurking. It's ready to pounce on you. There's a cane has become the prime example of this sort of a pattern. And that's why Jude 11 says, Beware of the way of Cain. And so that's some bad news as we look at the character called Cain here. But my friends, there is hope in this. Let me share with you a very encouraging text. Because Hebrews, the next chapter, not Hebrews 11, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, says this. Hebrews 12, 24 says, the blood of Christ has better things to tell than the blood of Abel. Oh, praise God, there's something better than the blood of Abel. So the blood of Abel, yeah, we, we just read here in this text, Genesis 4, right? What is it doing? It's crying out for vindication. It's, it, it's, it's wanting some judgment and justice to be done. It is blood that is appealing for justice, but what does Jesus' blood do? Does Jesus' blood appeal for justice? It brings justice. It brings Jesus' blood brings cleansing. It brings real forgiveness. Jesus' blood brings peace with God. So Jesus' blood plead, pleads not for vengeance, but instead for mercy. As 1 John 1, 7 says, it's the blood of Jesus, His Son, that cleanses us from all sin. Praise God. There is hope, my friends, for all who are tempted to follow the way of Cain. Or all who have succumbed to the sin of envy and anger and even murder. There is hope. Because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And it's interesting, two verses after that, it says God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's the key there? You must confess your sin. There's hope for the confessors of sin. So praise God, there's great hope for us all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for good and bad examples that we can see here of real people 
We're thankful for giving us the scriptures here and the spirit who illuminates us and teaches us the word. May we understand the great truths in a uh, just a, some terrible things that are taking place here in your word. But may we understand the issue of unbelief and how we can be tempted to, to follow the way of Cain. May we not follow his way. <clears throat> may we overcome evil with good. May we believe by faith who you are, what you've done, what you've told us to do. Protect us from calloused hearts. May we have tender hearts, ready to receive your word and to act and obey upon it. May we be protected from ourselves and in our own ways, our own sinful ways. Be gracious to us, we ask. Uh, we're thankful that uh, in the midst of all this judgment and this horrible events, we can still see you. We see you as a gracious God who gives what we do not deserve. And you enable us to do your will. We ask you would do that for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.